You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today is March 3rd, 2024, and this is episode 267 of Lighthearted. I'm flying solo today with no co-host. We're going to have three segments in this episode. First, we will listen to a conversation with Guinevere Porter and her friend Danny. You might remember that Gwyn co-hosted an episode a while back. She's 11 years old and lives in Kentucky, and Gwyn and her mother Heather are devoted listeners to this podcast. Gwyn is a big fan of visiting and climbing lighthouses, and in this conversation, she and her friend Danny talk about some of the really tall lighthouses they visited together. I want to thank Gwyn's mom, Heather, for arranging for this recording, and you'll hear Heather a little bit in the conversation. After this segment, we'll listen to a segment on an interesting subject that is related to lighthouse history. We'll talk with clockmaker Patrick Mont about Chelsea clocks, which were the favorite clock of the lighthouse service for many years. I'm sure a lot of you know how uh, collectible lighthouse service clocks are. After that, we'll hear another segment with Gwyn Porter. She interviewed me, along with our co-hosts, Michelle Jewell Shaw and Cindy Johnson. We talked about Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, a place that is near and dear to us. But first, let's listen to Gwyn and Danny talk about why they love visiting lighthouses. Hi guys, I'm here with my best friend Danny, who we climbed a lot of lighthouses with over the summer, and I'm here to interview her about them. Hello, I'm excited to be interviewed about lighthouses. How many lighthouses did you see over the summer? Um, I'm pretty sure it was five. Were they fun to climb? Yeah, they were really enjoyable to climb. Where were they? Um, some of them were in Georgia, and some of them were in Florida. Nice. <laughs> Personally, when I went with you, my favorite thing about um, the lighthouses we climbed was um, climbing them with you because in my family because it was my siblings' first time climbing one. So yeah, it was fun. really fun because I didn't know that it was her like her siblings' first time climbing them, and being a part of that experience was like really really cool. Yeah, what is your favorite thing about lighthouses? My favorite thing about lighthouses is like trying to climb up this all the stairs and it takes like a really really long time but when you finally get to the top you're like this was totally worth the while yeah once you're climbing it you're like oh my god is this going to be worth it like i know this is beautiful but like is it going to be worth it and then you get up there and it's like oh my gosh this was worth it it's amazing up here (laughs) yeah it's just like you're scared the entire time you're going up the lighthouse but once you get to the top you're just like that actually wasn't that scary yeah personally uh, my favorite lighthouse is Ponsonwood, but I want to know what your favorite lighthouse is. Um, my favorite lighthouse was probably St. Augustine. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the second biggest or tallest lighthouse that we uh, climbed, but I just thought that one was really cool. It just like stuck out to you? Yeah, it, I don't know what about it. It was just like it randomly stuck out to me as like something that, you know, was really fun to climb. Can you uh, think of another reason why it was your favorite? Like, it was really pretty. I got some pictures of it, and uh, it was just really memorable because, you know, that view was just amazing. You know, it was just something that you, you know, you just can't forget about. Yeah. For me, um, Ponsonwood that was mine because, like you said, it was it was very beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. And um, climbing it with you was um, something that I can, like, get closer to you with. 
that was one that like we went ahead of my mother on and we just like shot up the lighthouse because it was like one of our first ones we climbed so we yeah. were just so excited to see the top and the view was amazing so yeah I know that we climbed a very tall lighthouse um what was that like for you but Tiny was, Island. Yeah, it was like really scary going up the lighthouse because you didn't know if you were going to be terrified as soon as you got to the top of the lighthouse or if you're just going to be like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Or you're just going to freak out as soon as you get up there. I saw you and you were like gripping the <laughs> handlebars and you were like struggling to climb up, climb up because of how sc- you were like, okay, I can do this. And then we, <laughs> at one of the break points, you had to sit down and you were like, I can do, I like, this is very long and hard, but, but I can do this. <laughs> Once you got up there, you were like, wow, this was all worth it. Like, I'm glad I told myself I can do this. Like, this yeah, awesome. like, it was, it was also, I think it was one of our fir- first lighthouses. And it was just like, like second, yeah. yeah, it was uh, one of those lighthouses where you just like, you want to get to the top as fast as you can, but at the same time, you're just like, you're going to like get so tired so fast it feels like your leg muscles are about to burst like it's like <laughs> just like two steps in you're just like i want to quit <laughs> yeah but you don't because you know it's going to be worth the while yeah um would you say it's more fun to climb a lighthouse with when you're with a friend definitely i think climbing lighthouses with people that you know and like it brings you a lot closer to your friends and it's a lot more fun because then you can experience it together and it just becomes more memorable because you're hanging out with your best friend. I mean, why not hang out with your best friend? <laughs> I think it's fun to share the experience, not just with a friend, but with family. Like, the ones that I've climbed before you came with us with mm-hmm. my mom, they were fun because we got to take a lot of photos. And it was more fun because, like, it was like a girl's trip for us. Mm-hmm. But with you, it was like, this is my best friend, so it's like I should, like, really enjoy this and I felt like I got closer to you mm-hmm. like I said before yeah like I've had a lot of vacations but that specific vacation where we went to go see all these different lighthouses I just remember because I remember being with you and I remember it was my first time going up into lighthouses so it was just really awesome going to climb lighthouses and being able to hang out with my best friend yeah, that's that's the main thing for me, like best best friends and everything. It's like just sharing the experience of how awesome lighthouses are is really good. Do you like the view of lighthouse the lighthouses? Yes, I I love the view because you know it's always worth it whenever you waste every single bit of your energy just climbing up the stairs and then you finally <laughs> get to the top. It's wonderful seeing everything from down there because you just feel so so tall and powerful for some reason just like i can do anything now yeah i'm gonna do everything and everything i really like the view especially when it's close to a beach or something because you see the waves and we were climbing um one over the summer and i don't know if i pointed out to you but i saw like a couple dolphins in the that's exactly what I was going to say. It's just like you can see anything if you're close to the ocean because like you normally would be able to see closer to the ground because maybe they're farther out. Yeah. Um, but it's um, just you can see so many more things. Yeah. I also like how over the summer my grandma um, couldn't climb them. So we climbed and she stayed down there. And I brought this flower up there. And whenever we got up there, she was, like, taking photos, and I dropped the flower, and it landed, like, right on her head. <laughs> and she was, like, 
it's rain and flowers. Oh, and I remember I just, that. I just like how it was really funny to see her like, what? But she's also like so tiny and it was really funny. Yeah, was really she, cool too. she had to sit at the bottom of the lighthouses because um, Gwen's little siblings, they brought strollers and the strollers couldn't go up, up into the lighthouses. So um, me, Gwen, and Heather and uh, her brother Zeke just had to go up into the lighthouses. But it was still it really was, fun. Was, yeah. yeah. It was still really fun. The first one I climbed, I was five months old. And my mom carried me up there. But I really liked it. And it was amazing. Okay, um, do they all look the same? And like, does the inside and outside look the same? Um, of course, to get to the top of the lighthouse, there are staircases. And um, sometimes the staircases can be different because they can be concrete or they can be metal where... Um, the ones where, like, they're the yeah, holes like, underneath. Yeah. And, like, every step you're just scared that you're going to fall like, to the bottom of the lighthouse. I remember climbing that one, and my, my mom had to carry my three-year-old sister because she was scared. She thought that she was going to fall or drop her toy. And I was, like, holding on to her, like, don't, don't, don't let me fall. Like, if you, if I fall, it's your fault. Yeah, like, <laughs> it was going up into a spiral all the way to the top. And remember, it was those metal ones, but there was just this tiny little railing on the inside. So, like, we tried to stay as close to the wall as we could all the way up the lighthouse. <laughs> it was scary. Okay, I got um, so dizzy so fast. Um, what about the outside? Um, the outside of lighthouses, um, I'd say the structure is pretty much the same on every lighthouse, unless it's, like, the bottom. Where the or, like, the house. Yeah, like, the house out, yeah. of the lighthouse. But the light can sometimes be different. Like, I've seen just smaller lights, bigger lights, different kinds of lights but they can be different colors or they can be solid color like ponds and lit some can be like striped and they don't always have to be like black and white they can be like different colors i haven't seen one that's like different colors but um i've heard of some that are different colors but they can also be solid colors oh what did you think of the oldest lighthouse you've ever seen the oldest lighthouse i've ever seen i was shocked to see how good it was still intact and how um i'm pretty sure it was built in 1874 but it was like structural on the outside it was really clean and still beautiful and on the inside it was still wonderful too i really like how it shows that they're still clean how it shows that they're still clean because i think it that like showing that so clean also shows that like people still care about lighthouses and how they should because they're beautiful and there's a lot that aren't making it really which i think is really upsetting but there should be like more interest in lighthouses especially for younger people but um yumi is um someone that is like no offense but like someone that's older and like much older into lighthouses and people <laughs> I think that more like 10 and 11 year olds should be getting into lighthouses rather than like 60 70 year olds more 10 and year old, 11 year olds should be taking care of lighthouses and like spreading awareness of them and um, liking them and getting interest in them because whenever they get older they're the ones who should be looking out for them if they know about them yeah, I mean, I think it's important to get into lighthouses earlier and then later so that um, the earlier you get into them, the more you can climb and the more, you know, physically you'll be healthier to climb them before you get too old. 
and the older you get, the more you can learn and preserve them for, you know, younger generations. For years to come. Who got you into lighthouses? There are a few different people who specifically got me into lighthouses. Specifically, I remember this third grade girl who got me into being her friend, and then I came to her house, and I looked it around, I took one good look around, and I just knew her mother was a little obsessed with lighthouses. Hmm, I wonder who. What was her name again? Hmm, last time I checked, it was Heather. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the girl you became friends with, I'm pretty sure her name was Guinevere. What? Last time I checked. <laughs> that was just, it was just last time. It might have changed. Um, but for me, um, my mother was... Heather was the one who got me into lighthouses because I was born and, like I said, I was like five months old whenever she brought me to a lighthouse, and it was fun seeing my first lighthouse. I know that I don't remember it because I was like five months old, but it was quite an experience seeing my first one that I can remember. Did you like the design of the lighthouses that we saw this summer? I mean, yeah, they're very pretty on the outside. Like... You know, you could see them from far away. You're just like, oh, that's automatically a lighthouse. Like, your brain just connects, and you're just like, that's a pretty lighthouse, you know? Yeah, it's like, from far away, you can, like, tell it's beautiful. Because even if you don't know it's a lighthouse, or, like, you've never heard of a lighthouse, and you see it, you're like, I don't know what that is, but that thing is gorgeous. Because it has its own colors, it's very unique, and I like it. Yeah, very, like they had their good. own designs on the outside and how it was structurally built and how there was thought put into it on how it specifically looked and, you know, worked. Okay, this is my last question. What, what was your first lighthouse you ever saw? The first lighthouse <laughs> I've ever been to and seen was Tybee Island Lighthouse that was in Georgia. But it was very fun to climb, and uh, for it being my first lighthouse and experience with Gwen and her siblings and Heather, um, it was really fun to climb to the top and see the top of the first, uh, lighthouse for the first time. My first lighthouse is Old Point Comfort in Virginia because it was the first one my mom brought me to that I can remember when I was six years old because, um, like I said, she's very into lighthouses. She even has a tattoo on her arm the lighthouse and she's planning on getting more and of course she would be the first one to take me and I like Old Point Comfort because I've been there more than once when I more than when I was six six years old I remember it as a fun time that I connected with my mom because uh, my mom says that she know that she knew as soon as she saw me look amazed at the lighthouse she knew I would like them so that was my last question. Um, thank you, Danny, for letting me interview you. Mm-hmm. I had a really fun time interviewing you. Um, yeah. I hope that somewhere in the future, if you see more, I can interview you again. Um, yeah, this was really fun, and thank you for interviewing me um, on Lighthouses. We'll get back to another segment with Gwyn shortly, but first we'll listen to a conversation about Chelsea Clocks. If you're thinking, what do clocks have to do with lighthouses, the answer is quite a bit, actually. Here is a little background. The Chelsea Clock Company has its roots in the Harvard Clock Company, renamed as the Boston Clock Company in the 1880s. In 1897, the company was sold and renamed Chelsea Clock. The company also became involved in the manufacture of ship's bell mechanisms. 
In the early 1900s, U.S. government agencies began to order Chelsea clocks. The company also made clocks for Rolls-Royce automobiles starting in 1903. Chelsea wall clocks were used to keep the time at many light stations, light ships, and lighthouse tenders. Lighthouse service clocks are now highly sought-after collectibles. The old 27,000-square-foot Chelsea Clock Company building in Chelsea, Massachusetts, was vacated in 2015 after 118 years of use. Two years later, it was demolished to make room for retail space and condominiums. The company's home is now an upgraded factory building in Chelsea. Our guest today, Patrick Mont, is a clockmaker for Chelsea Clocks. This is a little off the beaten path when you think about lighthouses, but it's very much related, and I think you'll enjoy this segment. So let's listen to my conversation with Patrick Mont now. I'm speaking today with Patrick Mont, who is a clockmaker for Chelsea Clock, one of the great clock companies in the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a slightly different uh, subject today. Uh, this subject is related to lighthouses, Chelsea clocks. It's not uh, as uh, much a lighthouse topic as, as I usually do in the podcast, but I'm so happy you contacted me because anybody who, certainly anybody who's interested in lighthouse antiques knows about Chelsea clocks. And anybody who has studied the history of the lighthouse service, and I believe the Coast Guard as well, uh, probably is aware of Chelsea clocks. So there's a long relationship, a long uh, tie-in to lighthouses, certainly in this country. Chelsea clocks are special. I think they're often uh, described as, you know, one of the, the best clocks that have been made. What makes Chelsea clocks so special? Well, I think the first reason is probably that Chelsea clocks quality is sort of number one, two, and three on this list. They're made very well. They're built to last. They're rugged, dependable, and uh, they're not going to let you down. So I think that in and of itself is probably one of the biggest reasons. These years later, uh, you know, the history and certainly relative to what we're talking about, uh, the interaction of Chelsea clocks at different places in government high and low, you know, whether that's sort of in the trenches or in the White House is of interest to people. So there's sort of a mystique, a little bit of an aura around a Chelsea clock, and, and that certainly helps make it special as well. They're certainly visually beautiful as well. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I'm no I'm no clockmaker. I'm not that technically minded, but I love looking at, at clocks. I love grandfather clocks. I love all kinds of clocks. I, I visited a, something called the Museum of Time when I was in Waterford, Ireland uh, about a oh, year and a half sure. ago. I don't know yeah. if you've heard of that, but there was so much fun. I, I really enjoyed seeing clocks that were hundreds of years old and everything. I understand that Chelsea clocks were used very heavily by federal agencies in this country going back to the early 1900s. I'm wondering, was that, it was, of course, in the lighthouse services, I said, but was that across all, like all different federal agencies, the military yeah, as well? Exactly. Uh, all various federal agencies used Chelsea clocks, and uh, some still do. But in 1898, the U.S. Naval Observatory purchased their first Chelsea clock, uh, which was serial number 226, so nice and early. And um, they were so pleased with the result of the clock that the Naval Observatory, who was sort of the keeper of time and still is the keeper of time for the world, uh, was satisfied enough with Chelsea clocks that they sort of cer certified it and um, got them going in all different places. Uh, it's my mm -hmm. understanding that the Naval Observatory would take the clocks in and 
occasionally even tune them up themselves, basically fine tune the timing and stuff like that. But um, with that connection to the Naval Observatory, the clocks made their way to all different agencies. Those include the U.S. Lighthouse Service, the Lighthouse Establishment, uh, the U.S. Life-Saving Service, uh, even stuff that's a little bit more obscure, like the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service. Um, mm. Some of these things we actually see labeled on the clock dials, which is related to the lighthouse clocks, you know, where, where at what point they're very collectible. So, yeah, yeah. definitely all, all different federal agencies. And why do you think Chelsea clocks uh, were especially suited for use in the lighthouse service? I think it sort of is the build of the clock in general. You know, they are marine clocks. They're designed for a marine environment. Most clocks, if not a marine clock, depend on a pendulum, and these don't. So they can be on a vessel. They can be, you know, in, in all sorts of transport-type scenarios where most clocks at the time could not. The durability of the clock and the way that they're in a brass housing, most of the ones at this time had a screw bezel, effectively creating a seal against the elements. And the, the parts of the movement were gold-plated. The brass parts were all gold-plated to prevent against corrosion hmm. to also try and stand up better in the marine environment. So the Chelsea clock at its DNA is very much built to be in an environment like a lighthouse. So it stands to reason that the lighthouse service was happy with the clocks are we talking mostly or almost entirely of wall clocks here uh or are there other types of clocks that would have been used in the lighthouse service like well like pocket watches for example well yeah i mean i can't speak to that too much but i know that yeah the lighthouse service would have used pocket watches um there were wall clocks pendulum wall clocks regulator clocks that were made by some other companies such as the Howard Company of Boston as well that were employed by the Lighthouse Service. But uh, as far as what Chelsea supplied, it was primarily these marine clocks. Mm -hmm. Which would have been on the, the wall pretty much. Right, right. or yeah. a bulkhead of a, you know, of a vessel or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the reason nothing, nothing that was, you know, portable in hand, you could say. Yeah. The reason I mentioned that is that I've read that the Lighthouse Keepers would use clocks to make sure the the timing of the flash, like if it was a, a rotating Fresnel lens, you know, to make sure it was. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So that it seems would seem to make sense that they would have used a pocket watch. You know, you can't carry a, a larger. Like, yeah. 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 Unless they had some kind of clocks mounted in the lantern rooms of the lighthouses. I don't know. I guess that's possible. Well, but. I mean, uh, you, I actually have never been in a, inside a proper lighthouse myself. I mean, is there enough room in between the, panes of the glass for them to the <laughs> yeah. go down to about you know a two and two and three quarter inch dial diameter so they do get very small yeah it's an interesting question i i hadn't really given it a lot of thought before now but i, I maybe somebody listening will know if they actually uh, would have small clocks mounted in the somewhere in the, the lantern room of the lighthouse well I, I guess i should add on this that virtually every clock that we supplied as far as i know that would have been supplied to the lighthouse service had a four and a half inch dial mm -hmm. chelsea clock measures the size of the clock under a strange convention of the dial size so uh the clock is called a four and a half inch clock but it's not that the diameter of the whole case is four and a half inch but that's the size of the dial itself okay so i'm looking at a clock i have on the wall here and actually it's probably similar similar size so it gives me an idea i've seen them before too so i think it's a 
a fairly common size, right? Sure. Wall yeah. clocks in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, so does the federal government still use Chelsea clocks? They do. Yeah, um, we supply them for defense use. And um, recently, the company made a clock for the White House Historical Commission. And uh, we sent a 12 inch Chelsea clock down to the White House that is actually above an elevator that goes to the president's own living quarters. Wow. Cool. Wow. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the Coast Guard will still buy clocks on occasion. I just repaired a clock that came in that uh, was from the Coast Guard, sort of commemorating a new vessel at the time. Yeah, still yeah. still active with the, the government work. I haven't actually asked you yet, but your title is clockmaker, right? But right. is that in, in your position with Chelsea Clock, is that? Mostly repair of clocks, or, or what do you do exactly? Uh, these days, it's mostly repair of clocks. Um, I spend most of my time in the repair and restoration department, although I help out with assembly of new Chelsea movements as needed, but it's not a huge need for mechanical Chelsea clocks that are made and assembled in the factory in-house today. But that is still a capability that Chelsea Clock has, and uh, we largely make the movement the same way today as we did in the beginning in 1897. Hmm. Well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. exactly. Yeah. So is there a, a museum or other place where people can actually go and seek clocks? Two parts of this question. Is there a place where they can go and see the actual clocks, uh, you know, physically in person? And or is there one or more good websites where they can look at these? Sure. Well, there's no physical museum dedicated to Chelsea clocks, but there are a few great clock museums in the country. One of them is at the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors headquarters in Pennsylvania. They have a great clock museum that has clocks of all types, and there are some decent Chelsea clocks in there. Um, and there's also the American Watch and Clock Museum in Bristol, Connecticut, I believe it's Bristol. Mm. And the AWCI, which is the American Watchmakers Clockmakers Institute, has a time museum, as they call it, at their headquarters in Harrison, Ohio. So those are some of the more general places you can go to see the clocks. But as far as specifically Chelsea Clock, there is a great resource that's called the Chelsea Clock Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a website that is hosted by a very well-established and known Chelsea Clock collector, Jim Dyson, who lives down in Virginia, uh, who has a great website that is probably gives almost as much info as anybody would really want to know about a Chelsea clock. And he's yeah. got great photos on there. So that's, you know, Chelsea specific. That's probably your best bet to check out to uh, mm -hmm. get started. Yeah, I saw that website and I was a bit confused because I'm thinking, oh, there's a Chelsea clock museum. Maybe I'll visit there sometime. And I kept yeah, digging in there. How do you? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Dyson's house effectively is the Chelsea Clock Museum. It's not open to the public, but, you know, he's managed to uh, to, to have as, as many Chelsea Clocks displayed in one place as most people could imagine. And like I told you, I did visit that place called the Museum of Time in Waterford, Ireland, which is absolutely amazing. I don't know how many listeners would have a chance to go to that, but if they ever do go to, to that part of Ireland, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, and I'm sure there were Chelsea there were Chelsea clocks there. There were clocks, you know, some of the best and most beautiful clocks from all over the world. So Chelsea clocks, uh, the ones used in the lighthouse service and just in general, they are highly collectible. But the ones used in the lighthouse service may be especially highly collectible. 
Why do you think they're so popular with collectors? Well, there's a few key things about a Chelsea clock that I think really add to their collectability. And one of them is the history and their involvement with organizations like the Lighthouse Service. Combined with the fact that all of the clocks, the movement and the case are serialized, and with the company still being in business today, we still have our original sales ledgers. So if you should come across a Chelsea clock, you can contact the factory with the serial number. We can look up the date the clock was sold and who it was sold to. And depending on the range of years, there's more information in there, such as the case and dial details, how large the clock is, the finish, stuff like that. So I think that that adds a lot to the collectability. You can have us make up a certificate of origin, they call it, and and give you this information. In addition to that, the quality of the clocks, I think, plays a a great factor. The fact that the style of a Chelsea clock is pretty well timeless. You know, I mean, the design of the dial, the hands, the case, a clock that's from 1905 looks every bit as fresh today as it ever did. And I think that's true throughout style changes and design changes in history. They're always relevant. They never really go out of style. So they also have that going for them. And largely what Chelsea is is most famous for on a bigger scale is, is developing and manufacturing the ship's bell striking clock that strikes a uh, eight-bell sequence in four-hour watch periods. Uh, that That's that's really the, the claim to fame there. And uh, in some form, those are still used today, right? They're still used today. They're still manufactured today. And, uh, you know, like I said before, it's... a Mostly following that uh, late 1800s technique and style of manufacturing them. Yeah, the the ones made now. Well, there are probably some ones that cheat and use a digital technology to produce a chime, well, but it's actually, not it's not the same. <laughs> well, we are, the Chelsea Clock Company offers uh, a quartz electronic, basically version of a ship's bell. So it's it's so um, you know in the DNA that that they have done that update. And, uh, you know, but it's just, it's not the same. It's just, yeah. Well, I can't say I'm sorry. I mean, it makes sense to offer, offer both, (laughs) but it's nice. They still make the, the old type as well. So I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. And that question is, what do you enjoy most about working for Chelsea clock? I have to say the thing I enjoy the most is that my work doesn't feel like work at all. I mean, it's just, I found something that I enjoy endlessly and I, It just doesn't feel like work to build the clocks, to repair the clocks. Above and beyond that, I'm very fortunate to work with a great group of people that also love Chelsea Clock as much as I do. Um, One of the people I'm fortunate to work with and learn from uh, started working at Chelsea Clock back in 1951 and still comes to work every day. Wow. So it's uh, if you've worked at Chelsea Clock 40 years, you haven't worked there very long. And so I'm very fortunate to be around people that uh, just sort of have Chelsea clock in their blood and uh, also enjoy the work. That's fantastic. And uh, you're making me think of how I, uh, it's not, this isn't work for me, you know, doing a podcast and other lighthouse things. It's not work, it's fun. And that's, <laughs> you know, I think uh, you and I probably both feel pretty lucky to have yeah, work definitely. that's, that's, that's not, not like work. Um, so that's great. I knew right away when you emailed me that you have s- such a love for this uh, this work, for these clocks. And uh, 
I, I'm glad uh, you could come on the podcast. Again, it's something that's a little bit outside the the usual realm of talking about lighthouses and everything, but it yeah, is. I, you know, I yeah. appreciate you having me and it's, you know, probably a smaller pocket of importance for people interested in lighthouses, but for people interested in Chelsea clock, the lighthouse clocks are a very significant segment to them. So I think it's a great combination. Yeah. Well, Patrick Mott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is great. And we'll stay in touch. And uh, I do have to replace my, my wall clock with an authentic Chelsea clock. <laughs> but thank you so much, Pat. We have one more segment today. A while ago, I asked Gwyn Porter who she might want to interview for the podcast. And she said she wanted to interview me about Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse here in New Hampshire. I founded the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses as a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation back in 2001, and I still volunteer for the group. Also taking part in the conversation are two regular co-hosts of this podcast, Cindy Johnson and Michelle Jewell Shaw. Michelle is the chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, and Cindy is the secretary. Both of them have won awards for their volunteerism. So let's listen to our conversation with Gwyn Porter about Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse now. How did you get involved with the lighthouse? This is Michelle, and I'll take that first question. I've always loved lighthouses, and I really became passionate about them. Oh, gosh, seven years ago or so, I started photographing them. And then I went to a fundraiser that Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses was doing at the Old Salt in Hampton. That's where I met Jeremy and Cindy and expressed interest in volunteering and started volunteering that summer doing tours. And the now I'm chairperson. The rest is history. Now I'm chairperson <laughs> of the organization and, and um, still as passionate as I was then. Hi, everyone. This is Cindy. So I, um, I started really liking lighthouses many years ago as someone who is a transplant to New England. So I'm not originally from New England, but once I came here, I was um, just embraced all things New England, the history, the, the charm, the uh, coast. And of course, that means the lighthouses too. And then um, it was actually my mom in 2003 who knew my interest and saw, I think, an ad in the paper that Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse here in New Hampshire was having um, one of its, at that time, I think it was just a monthly open house. And um, I went on the tour and that's when I, I didn't really know it then, but that's when I first met Jeremy because he was um, giving the tours and he was actually up in the lantern room. And I remember learning about his um, his website then and that he was sort of, the person who he was the sort of go-to person about New England lighthouses and that sort of it sort of went from there and then I ended up um, leaving New England for a bit and then when I came back I think it was uh, 2014 when my stepdad saw an ad in a little local um, little local sort of fluffy news uh, free magazine sort of thing or newspaper thing called the uh, uh, coffee news and it was advertised that Jeremy was going to be speaking about uh, our local lighthouse history. And my stepdad said, hey, this is right up your alley. And that's when I officially met Jeremy and signed up to be a volunteer with Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. And like we said with Michelle, the rest is kind of history from there. Yeah. Yeah, this is Jeremy. Uh, interestingly, the first time I saw Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, I'm going to say it was about 1989. 
with my wife, Charlotte, and we were just driving around the Portsmouth area, Newcastle, a little town next to Portsmouth, of course, is where the lighthouse is. And we parked uh, near a park called Great Island Common. It was low tide. We're able to walk along the shore all the way from the park to the lighthouse, which meant we were walking onto the Coast Guard station there, which these days they'll chase you off of there pretty quickly if you walk on there. So, but then those days, nobody seemed to pay any attention. And we actually got right onto the base of the lighthouse. And at that time, the lighthouse was all rusty. There were, the base of it was all cracked and there were weeds growing up all over the place. It didn't look too great. Um, But little did I know how involved I would get years later. So later, my wife and I lived in Winthrop, Mass for a long time. And then we moved here to Portsmouth in 2001. The American Lighthouse Foundation had just gotten a license from the Coast Guard to take care of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. So I kind of stepped in. I was already on the board of the American Lighthouse Foundation. I stepped in at the right time, you know, moved to Portsmouth at the right time to kind of start the group to take care of it. So we started the, the local chapter. So it's been 23 years since we started the the uh, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. And of course, we ended up taking over taking uh, care of Whaleback Lighthouse too. But Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse has been a big part of my life for these past 23 years. Who uses the Keeper's House? Good question. Well, of course, it's it's on it's all on a Coast Guard station called Coast Guard Station Portsmouth Harbor. They have a big main building where they have a lookout tower on top and they watch for you know boats and trouble and things like that. The Keeper's House is actually used by a, a group of uh, people, they call it the Marine Safety Detachment. They inspect some of the big ships that are coming into Portsmouth, things like that. If there's like an oil spill in the area, they deal with that. They are somewhat involved with like boating safety and things like that. So they, again, it's called the Marine Safety de- Detachment. So it's just a few people who work <clears> in the op- offices in there. Upstairs, Marine Fisheries Federal Agency uh, has an office there as well. So, uh, Who is Connie Small? Oh, well, uh, Connie was an amazing person. She was the the wife of the last keeper of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Her husband's name was Elson Small, and they lived at lighthouses for 28 years altogether, mostly on the coast of Maine, mostly on islands. And then they came to Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in 1946 and finished their career there in 48. Uh, but uh, Connie uh, later at 85 years old wrote the book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife which is a classic. If you want to read about what it was like to live at lighthouses, that's the number one book to read. Uh, And I was lucky to know Connie late in her life. She lived to be 103. She died at 103 in 2005. And I felt so lucky to know her. And I interviewed her on video when she was 96 years old. So uh, just such a nice person and so happy to, to know that people cared about lighthouses that made her super happy. You should read the book. It's a wonderful book. I've read it twice. And she was so pleased uh, specifically to, to see from what uh, Jeremy has told us, uh, she was so pleased to see that there was this group of people that really cared uh, about Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse specifically, that there was this friends group and that there were all these um, local folks and not local folks coming to visit and go on the tours. And so um, Jeremy, we sort of, uh, we made her an honorary chairperson. I think that was 2000. And three, 2003. Three. She was 101 years old when we did that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We called her our guiding light. We gave her a, a certificate, a frame certificate that called, called her our guiding light, which she was. I agree with Michelle. You have to read the book. Anybody yeah. listening, if they haven't, they need to read the book. Um, why was the lighthouse built? Um, so the lighthouse was first built. So the first lighthouse that stood there 
um, was built in 1771 and Portsmouth was quickly becoming a really important stop in the shipping industry. And there's a, a big, a lot of rocks around that area when ships are first coming into the harbor. So they needed a lighthouse there to got safely guide ships into the harbor so it was the first lighthouse that was built there was in as i said was in 1771 and then they moved it a little closer to the mouth of the harbor in 1804 when they built a new lighthouse so and then in 1878 is when the lighthouse that we have there now was built i'll just add that the when the first lighthouse was built in 1771 it was as you said, Michelle, Portsmouth was an important port. There was shipbuilding and trade and things going on. And the colonial governor at the time kind of pleaded to the the colonial legislature. It said, you've got to put up the money to build a lighthouse here. And he said, if there's any more shipwrecks here, basically it's on your heads. He was making them yeah. feel guilty if they didn't pay for a, a lighthouse. So that was the first lighthouse north of Boston when they built that first lighthouse in the mm-hmm. summer of 1771. Uh, who was the longest keeper? Well, the longest keeper was Joshua Card, but I am going to defer to Jeremy on this one because, um, well, because I love hearing about him. (laughs) Well, there's so much we can say about Joshua Card, but yeah, he was there 35 years, 1874 to 1909. Uh, He was keeper until he was 86 years old. He was a local guy. He was from the town of Newcastle, grew up right near the lighthouse. Before he was at Portsmouth Harbor, he served for a a few years as a keeper at Boone Island Lighthouse, which is several miles out in the ocean off of uh, southern Maine. And one time in a storm, the island was, there were waves going right over the island, and he and his wife and kids had to go up in the lighthouse tower so they wouldn't drown. Uh, And they lost a lot of the belongings. The house was flooded. He was the highest paid lighthouse keeper in the country at Boone Island, $860 a year. But he went down. Hazard pay, right? Hazard pay. Absolutely hazard pay, yeah. They did pay the keepers at the more remote lighthouses more money because it was dangerous uh, and they had to get people to, you know, otherwise people didn't want to do that job. So he quit there after that experience with the the giant waves um, and he took the job at Portsmouth Harbor for $500 a year, took a big pay cut, but mm-hmm. it's a nice place to live. He got a nice house to live in and uh, it was his hometown, much safer place to live. He got some raises over the years too, but anyway, people loved him from everything we know about him. He was very well-respected. He loved to give tours to people who were visiting. Joshua Card wore a traditional lighthouse keeper's uniform. And on the lapel, there was a K. That stood for keeper. (laughs) Um, But he was kind of a jokester. And whenever anybody asked what the K stood for, he'd say, well, captain, of course, because he (laughs) liked being called Captain Card. He did know that, you know, you didn't spell captain with a K. But he just thought it was funny to, you know, add that when he was speaking with guests. He was the oldest lighthouse keeper in the country when he uh, left at eight, the age of 86. Have you had much storm damage? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> we can yeah. all talk about this one. Historically, we know that there have been bad storms that have done some damage there. We know that like the blizzard of 1978, which is a very famous storm, part of the footbridge going out to the lighthouse or walkway about 80 feet long, part of that was washed away in that storm. But we didn't see anything that bad until just these past like uh, a couple of years. In my you know 23 years of being involved there, the four worst floods I've seen right on the Coast Guard station by the lighthouse, all four of the worst floods have been in the last three years. We've seen the, just absolutely the worst 
you know, the worst storms, the worst flooding, you know, recently. So on December, December 23rd, two days before Christmas, 2022, there was a big coastal storm. I was at home. Uh, I had a foot operation like the day before, and I'm lying there on the couch and I get a text from this guy, one of our a contact at the Coast Guard station. He sends a little video of the storm. And I see how flooded it is. And on his cell phone video, he like pans over to the lighthouse and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking something's wrong with this picture. It only showed it for yeah. like a second, but I could see that the walkway wasn't there. At least I was thought I could see that. Mm -hmm. So the footbridge, the 80 foot walkway out to the lighthouse was com uh, not completely, but more than half washed away. About, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, put, we didn't have access to the lighthouse. So, yeah. And was it the, it was the next day you got, you got over there, right? Michelle, is that right? Was yeah. the next? Yeah. It was, it was, you know, saddening, devastating, but not quite as bad as this last one, this last storm that we had that, you know, just wreaked havoc on the base, the oil house like that, that was a whole different and it's, devastation. It's really something to see it in person when that, that storm happened at, uh, in late December, 2022, I was at my mom's in Tucson and seeing the pictures, it was it was shocking to see most of the walkway just gone. I mean, really just gone. There, it, it uh, there weren't any remnants of it. Just poof, they they just disappeared. But then when I was uh, back here in New Hampshire a few weeks later, that uh, January of twenty twenty three, we were over at the lighthouse looking at it, and it's a whole different feeling to see it in person to just look out there and have have hardly any walkway and the stairs that go down to the oil house just gone. Um, so yeah, it was, it was sad. It was shocking, but even more so when you actually see it in person. And then um, I guess that sort of leads us to talk about the next big storm, the recent, the recent uh, storms that we had here in, in January of this year. Yeah. So as they're saying, we, ju we just had, we actually just had two big storms. We're talking here, in early February, uh, just a few weeks ago, January 10th and then January 13th, we had these big coastal storms that did a lot of damage along the coast. And uh, at Portsmouth Harbor, I, after the first storm on January 10th, I went over the next day, a seawall was knocked down near the lighthouse. There were rocks everywhere. It was a mess, but there didn't appear to be any damage to the lighthouse itself as far as we could see. But then we had the second storm three days later, and we uh, we got word that the, there was damage to the lighthouse and the oil house, little brick building near the lighthouse. I just remember uh, that it was on a Saturday because I was at my regular uh, job when Michelle was uh, at the lighthouse um, after the storm had passed and was taking pictures of all of the damage that happened to, I think we didn't know yet about the oil house because... Michelle, you weren't able to right. get I didn't there. right. I didn't wasn't able to get close enough because the the tide was still really high and the waves were still yeah. crashing up over that seawall. So I couldn't right. get around to yeah. see the oil. So house. You took pictures of the the the, base. the damage to what you could see that day anyway, of the damage yes. to the the base. And then yeah. on the next day that Sunday, um Bob Trapani and, you know, executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, you, Jeremy and Michelle on that Sunday morning were able to go out when the weather was completely clear and the tide was low, were able to go out and actually assess all of the damage to significant damage, of course, to Little Oil House, but also really significant damage to the base of the, the essentially the 1804 base, octagonal base of the, of the lighthouse 
sort of undermining the foundation of the tower itself. Uh, that So that base, this old stone base has been there for well over 200 years. And it's never been damaged like this until this this re most recent storm. And a good chunk of the base uh, was just wrecked. These big wooden timbers surrounding it, uh, a couple of them were just pulled pulled up. And yeah, they were just thrown on top of the on top of the concrete, you know, on top of the base, and that yeah. was pretty astounding. And the oil house, the little brick building, was really badly damaged. So we're still trying to figure out what's going to be repaired and who's going to repair it and how much it's going to cost and all that kind of thing. When you guys got that storm, we were getting like six inches of snow and it was like negative two here. Oh, wow. it was wow. yeah. People lost electric and it was right. ice. It was awful. It was, yeah. We missed like a whole week of school. Wow. wow. Yeah. And we like couldn't like we it was so much like it wasn't like, oh my gosh, let's go play outside type of snow. It was like we have to stay inside. It was like biting like danger. Yeah. You lost your power for a while, didn't you? you yeah, know? we lost about two days of power. Yeah. Wow. When it's cold, that's I... yeah, we had a couple space heaters and then gas, like our house is gas heat. So that was a cool. little bit better, but yeah. it was still yeah. so cold. Like cold. for half of the week we uh we were with our dad and uh, whenever it snowed, um, we didn't realize it was going to snow so much. So we got like trapped at our dad's for like another like two days. Mm -hmm. So we had to stay there. I don't say trapped in like a bad way. <laughs> no, but you stuck because of the weather. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Hopefully it's a little cleaned up by the time we get to come see it in May, even if we have to like wave to it from the crosswalk. You might have to, yeah, oh, yeah. We, do, we do too. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I look forward to meeting you. We come in May, and we'll at least so you can at least see it from about probably a little under a hundred feet away from the the wall there, or what we'll used to be a wall there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll get some pictures and probably get, all yeah. the books. Yeah, I wish I could promise it's all going to be fixed by then, but probably not by May. Probably. I guess no. that means we'll just have to make another trip. Do you like giving tours of the lighthouse? I love giving and tours. What's it like giving tours? So I love giving tours at the lighthouse. It's a little different now than it had been when I first started volunteering. When I first started volunteering, we were open every Sunday from one to five and we were doing just open houses. So we could get hundreds of people, um, you know, coming to tour the lighthouse that, you know, on those Sunday afternoons. And then during COVID, we had to, um, you know, switch to smaller groups. So now we do like scheduled private tours. So it's a little bit less chaotic, but still just I actually think I enjoy the private tours more because we get to spend more time with the visitors and you know things like that so I bet that's nice yeah or personal yeah, it's so much fun to share the history with folks who are visiting um especially when we had open houses there'd be there'd definitely be family members who weren't that interested in um being at a lighthouse on a sunday afternoon but they went because you know their friend or family member wanted to go on the tour and then it's always fun to sort of win them over and all of a sudden they're like that was awesome we loved it and yeah. uh, you know they got to climb to the top and see the views and all the great things about visiting a lighthouse um but oftentimes you win them over with the with the history about the keepers like Joshua Card and, you know, Elson and Connie Small. And they love they end up loving hearing those stories. And they always, you know, really appreciate what we do, which is a volunteer our time to um, 
to educate people about, you know, lighthouse history and of course, lighthouse preservation, which is huge now and um, sort of passing the message along. So yeah, it's really rewarding to, um, to give tours of the lighthouse. And I agree with Michelle that it was quite chaotic at times uh, when we were just open houses, you know, up to 200 people or more in a four hour period with lots of volunteers to manage all of those people. And then, um, you know, post sort of pandemic where it's, it's a lot more manageable and much smaller groups and we can spend more time with them, which is really nice. Actually, I think our record was 334 people in one four-hour Sunday open house. I was, wow. <laughs> I think we were there until uh, at least uh, like two, an, an extra hour, hour and a half or, or so After, that day. Yeah. And then, through. and then lots of sleep recovering from from that. Yeah, but it, I, I love it. You know, it's it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, of all the things I do you know related to lighthouses i think giving tours is probably my favorite just to to see people uh, again like cindy was saying that every family member isn't as into it as, as some of the others maybe but so often we'd see people smiling just being so happy when they're leaving and saying that was great and i really enjoyed that we had we had a guest book you know people would write in comments and say fantastic tour guides and really enjoyed it and that kind of thing and but, it's just it's just so nice you get people from all over the world so it's it's a lot of fun meeting people from all over Europe and Japan yeah. and everywhere else. So uh, it's uh, it's it's at the heart of what I think any lighthouse group does, really. Um, I have I have one more. Yeah. That's all I really have left. When was it automated? Well, it ha it's a little complicated because what happened was that it became a Coast Guard station in the late 1940s. <laughs> and they, uh, what they did was they, Elson Small, Connie's husband, was the last official keeper. So... They left and whoever was on watch, they would always have, have somebody in the Coast Guard on watch overnight, and that person would be in charge of turning the light on and off. Um, so it went on like that for a few years. And then in 1960, they automated the light. So that's when it was automated and uh, okay. still still <laughs> active. And I'll just mention that after that last storm where the base was so badly damaged and everything, the electric cable going out to the lighthouse was severed. So there was no light for a while, but the Coast Guard has put in a temporary cable there and it's working for now. And they're going to they're going to convert it to solar power, I'm, I'm told. So they plan to keep the light working. Oh, interesting. Solar power. One other thing I'll mention is that the, we still have a 19th century lens, a beautiful glass lens called a Fresnel lens. I'm sure you, mm -hmm. you guys have seen uh, those lenses in other lighthouses. So yes. we still have a fourth order Fresnel lens. And just in the last couple of years, the Coast Guard has been putting these modern LED lights inside some of the old Fresnel lenses. So we just got an LED light inside the Fresnel lens. And it's a green, okay. it, we used to have a green, like acrylic cylinder around the lens that made it a green light, but now that's a green LED light in there. So it's still a green oh, light. Okay. Different shade of green than it used to be. It is a little bit different, but yeah, <clears throat> I Somebody, like being able to see the lens. Yeah, yeah. Used to be kind of a deeper green, and now somebody said it looks like lime jello. That's kind of the shade of green it is, but it's still very, very bright light. Still does the job. Yeah. The lighthouses that you visited most recently are really tall in Florida and in Georgia mm -hmm. because it's so flat there, and they have these really tall lighthouses, and then it's different in New England because in New England, they, the lighthouse might be up on a cliff, and then so the lighthouse doesn't need to be as tall. So you guys went to really tall lighthouses. Yeah. It was worth it. 
I climbed Pontinlan and St. Augustine and Tybee Allen on the last couple of years. And yeah, they're mm -hmm. tall. Pontinlan, if I remember, is something like 213 steps. I believe it was. I'm going to wait till they reopen Cape Hatteras and take her back. She was like six months old when we went the I first time. So. Yeah, when you went to Oak, or Oak, right? I got to climb Cape Hatteras. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the tallest lighthouse I've climbed. Is that well, right, Jeremy? It's the tallest right one. It's the tallest Hatteras? one in the country. So Yeah. Oh, well, then it's definitely that. the tallest lighthouse I've ever climbed okay. then. Thanks for the interview, Michelle, Cindy, and Jeremy. Thanks, You're welcome. Man. It was My great pleasure. to meet you. <laughs> thank so you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>a big thank you to Guinevere Porter, her mom Heather, and her friend Danny for taking part in this episode. As Gwyn and Danny talked about in the first segment, it's so important for kids to experience lighthouses. I've never met a kid who didn't enjoy visiting and climbing a lighthouse, and by exposing kids to lighthouses we introduce them to so many things. Maritime history, the stories of keepers, the wildlife around lighthouses, and so much more. And the most important thing is that it's fun. I once interviewed Anna Merle Snow, the wife of the great maritime historian Edward Rowe Snow. Anna Merle was telling me about how her husband would talk to groups of kids, telling them stories of things like shipwrecks, pirates, and lighthouses. She said, they didn't realize it because they were having fun, but they were learning history. Next week's episode will be devoted to a beautiful lighthouse in New Jersey, Hereford Inlet. Until then, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening, and keep a good light. Oh.